terror, greed, indifference. What is going on? It would appear that the world is coming apart all around us, that the cross members and joists of rationality are falling down as the ship twists and buckles under the strain of total mania due to the insanity of its crew. The passengers will pay, regardless of rank and or station. Where the devil did the torpedo come from? How did it hit us? Why did it hit us? Who's to blame? Good evening. This is R.E. Chapman, and I would like to welcome you to my second podcast of which I will be addressing certain concerns that are having a definite impact on our very perceptions of good, honest living. The very world we are living in is experiencing a major sociological quake of epic proportions that is devastating the very structure we depend upon for a civilized existence. Yes, these are highly disturbing times for us citizens of this gathering for which we call the United States of America. But who are we exactly? Do we even know the answer to that question? Let's be honest with ourselves. Regardless of our political affiliation, level of patriotism, or our ethical stance, we are a total mess. No organization, no agenda, no ideas, no direction, just mania. In my first lecture, I touched on the sensitivity of society itself, the very basics of what it means to simply talk to one another. However, discussion is like any other form of machinery. It is fueled, turned on, and driven. And like any form of machinery, it can be susceptible to contamination, to filth, to dirt. In the end, the machine does not, or is not, turned off due to rationality of thought and reason, and eventually seizes up or breaks outright. Whatever happened to the excitement of social exchange, to talk about a thing, anything, sky was the limit. You could disagree or agree with a thing, agree to disagree, even joke about a thing and not worry about retribution, make a challenge just to see if it can be met. Why can't we simply sit down and have a discussion? The answer is so incredibly simple that it is accepted as the cultural norm. Social grace is the key. The lack thereof, that is, in fact, it has been completely removed from our interactive memorandum of social tooling. Someone starts a conversation and before they can say three words, they are cut off. Leadership, chapter 5, page 87, the book. I am not a PhD. Many people have a major shortcoming that is completely ignored because someone said that being polite was unimportant in regards to social interaction, that being rude is the norm, that it is simply okay to cut someone off in mid-sentence, in mid-thought. The oddity is, the person whom interrupts is usually not a part of the initial discussion. Then to add injury to insult, that person will change the subject altogether to something in the realm of sports how did we lose our understanding of social grace forget 
the Bermuda Triangle, whether or not we landed on the moon, or tomorrow's weather forecast. Where does the rudeness come from? In my experience with human interaction, there are clearly two kinds of impolite people, the deliberate and the unaware. The most annoying are those whom feel it necessary to correct every aspect of your discussion, regardless of how minimal the impact of the error may have on the overall topic. Sure, there are moments when a person may err, but to err is human. It happens, however, not every error requires a corrective interruption, but there are those whom are perfectionists, or whom simply enjoy vexing a speaker, instead of waiting for the ending to see if the error has any bearing with the overall subject of the discussion they simply cut you off in order to conduct an on-the-spot vocal edit for example a person may be seeking to express the aspect of how a story unfolds instead of what the story says the latest form of rudeness is the person who finds it necessary to cut you off because they consider certain words as inappropriate or the layout of language offensive, not necessarily to themselves, but in anticipation of possibly someone else's reaction and deflecting or perhaps preventing a hostile situation. The interesting thing about those people is that they usually lack basic social knowledge, or that some people in the room lack the social knowledge or the meaning of words and whisper and instigate their displeasure to others whom are easily swayed by ignorance. The internet is the crack in the civil dam, the icy spot on the busy social freeway. It is the ultimate butterfly effect, a mirage in the desert, Revelation's false prophet, the perfect example of a sociological medium that grew faster than our wisdom. There's absolutely no form of arrangement, order, blueprint, design, or scheme of any kind, just a routine. Papers scattered about the floor, Ever meet a person whose filing system was the scattering of documents on their desk? How the hell can they even manage themselves, you ask? How is our world in comparison to the internet? We make plans for everything. Constructing buildings, bridges, our lives. People make plans to conduct mischief. Plans were devised for going into space, the moon, making a movie. However, there is no planned structure to the internet. How did we let this happen? That will be a topic for another discussion, of course. Right now, the internet is chaos and it is spilling into the real world. We, to include our children, spend more time developing our technical skills, familiarizing ourselves more with technology, adjusting our mental capacity to a fox setting while leaving behind the warmth of understanding one another fine-tuning our people skills, how to politely interact with one another. Observe social media, the texting, the technology in general. What does it do? It erodes the very perceptions of how to be a decent human being, the understanding of how to manage social grace. Consider that all of you text back and forth without interruption, but do you do the same when speaking to one another in person? To be patient enough to allow someone to finish their thought before making a rebuttal? No, you do not. Because in the cyber world, the machine acts as the mediator, however, if there is no mediator. We know not how to be our own mediator. Of course, 
the dysfunction, again, is a result of a person whom rebuts by cutting off the initial speaker without thinking things out first, or they simply prefer to twist the Chaos Screw Leadership, Chapter 5, page 87, the book, I am not a PhD, to pester the serious-minded or the person seeking a serious intellectual exchange. Another point to make is that we live in a culture where math and science overshadows art, math and science overshadows philosophy, math and science overshadows the spoken language, math and science overshadows our religious beliefs and values. Interesting how some have said that we need more math and science in our schools to compete with other countries, however, we do not look at the overall lifestyles of those other countries, do we? There are those who would like you to believe that math and science is the stuff that dreams are made of, but the truth is, math and science overshadows the very aspect of harmonious living. Your Responsibility, Chapter 55, Page 7, the book, I Am Not a PhD. Truly, I say to you that we have forgotten that math and science does not make you a warm, caring person. Math and science does not allow you the joy of living. Math and science does not help you reach salvation. Math and science does one thing, and that is create a social niche of arrogant, egotistical indifference, of inconsideration to those seeking life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Seems like an unfair assessment, but the reality is that science is the most arrogant of the academic disciplines. The problem with those involved with the sciences is that they focus so much on a particular area of interest that it becomes an obsession. Lots of brain matter and man hours are spent on trying to accomplish what? Strengthening a theory with further hypotheticals that generate facts based on guesses. In the long run, it's all guesses, right? Something all of us are more than capable of formulating. Unfortunately, those in the sciences have made formulating an opinion and establishing a point of view in exclusivity of academia forgetting where they themselves came from, a common person like any other. Our ability to reason, to express a point of view, to argue, comes from the same source as our right to the pursuit of happiness. Do any of you remember that little tidbit from Thomas Jefferson, the right to the pursuit of happiness? Many of you do not, and yet, for some of us, arguing is sometimes that pursuit of happiness we seek. About now, you are asking, where is all of this going? Well, think about it. The first day of school, and all the teacher cares about is math and science, as if it were the way and the truth resulting in communication taking a back seat. Snare a Bachelor, Chapter 3, page 404 of the book. I am not a PhD. Sure, they give you the fundamentals of reading and writing, and we'll throw in a tad of American history, and yes, I do mean a tad, a tidbit, about a millisecond, if you were to compare K through 12 as a day in our lives, but nothing in regards to the basics of manners. Yes, we take thought to word composition for granted, because math and science 
is the only true universal language. But is it really? Consider an extraterrestrial trying to communicate their number system to you, and they use their middle finger to demonstrate the first integer instead of their index finger. Then what are they truly saying? Now, if you happen to doubt my assessment, then consider that the literacy rate in the United States of America is dropping significantly. Why? We are so obsessed with the idea of being math and science proficient that it is affecting other key elements of learning. For instance, how much emphasis is placed on writing, specifically cursive. Remember, cursive writing falls under our artful side. It gives us a sense of civility, passion, identity, a path towards understanding, meaning. The dynamic principles that sparks our imagination, the enemy, chapter one, page 197, the book, I am not a PhD. Art in general allows us to actually connect with the world, to express passion from the heart and soul, placing you on the path of what it means to be human. I would like to think that it all went sideways back when the Carter administration instituted the Department of Education, but the reality is a culmination of many things, the biggest being the erosion of our Judeo-Christian values. Guardian of the Garden, Chapter 8, Page 27, the book, I am not a PhD. We presume that secularism is the better social application because it allows all to have a voice, but the reality is not everyone's wants and needs can be incorporated into the overall communal scheme. What is government? Chapter 1, page 40, the book, I am not a PhD. No matter how you sum it up, one idea must have precedence because the reality is there are just some ideas that completely conflict with the natural order of life. Not to mention that there are groups that completely forbid the right to formulate an opinion. Say the wrong thing in the old Soviet Union, what happened? Say the wrong thing in the then Nazi-driven Germany, what happened? Say the wrong thing during McCarthyism, what happened? Say certain things today in this modern United States of America. And what happens? I was reading an old book translated from a different language, from a different time, a different place. I found the information quite fascinating. Let me read some of it to you. And the people will oppress one another, every man his fellow, and every man his neighbor, the youth, will be insolent to the elder, and the base fellow to the honorable. When a man takes hold of his brother in the house of his father, saying, You have a mantle, you shall be our leader, and this heap of ruins shall be under your rule. In that day he will speak out, saying, I will not be a healer. In my house there is neither bread nor mantle. You shall not make me leader of the people. Interesting the narrative, how it seems so in tune with our modern lives. Oh, and by the way, that was taken from the book of Isaiah, chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, the book, Holy Bible. Of course, when reading excerpts from the Bible, there is a certain fire that bubbles the juices of intellectualism to the point of directing frames of thought in a direction that would benefit the whole. For example, Isaiah, chapter 1, verse 2, Sons have I reared and brought up, 
but they have rebelled against me. Verse 4. Ah, sinful nation and people laden with inequity, offspring of evildoers, sons who deal corruptly. Verse 7. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, aliens devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by aliens. Chapter 3, verse 8. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. Verse 9. Their partiality witnesses against them. They proclaim their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil upon themselves. The book, Holy Bible. Which begs the question, what's the point of prophesying? People follow the writings of those such as Michel Nostradamus, Rosemary Cox, even Edgar Casey, and others, without realizing that history pretty much repeats itself. So what is the point of fortune-telling? I will tell you the point. Patience is a contemptible endeavor that we prefer to avoid. We are a people whom want to anticipate the actions of other people, nature, even ourselves, because we feel that we are going to miss out on the finer things of life or something important that will change our lives. Got news for you? The act of fortune-telling does just that from the onset. Yes, and that includes weather forecasters. You see, we lack confidence in ourselves, our ability to simply enjoy the very act of living itself, to take on what life throws at us day by day, moment by moment. The idea of apprehension, especially for a woman, is intolerable. We want an edge over fate, and we will reach into the very pit of our darkest nature to get it getting a little off base pardon back to the first question and that is how did we lose our understanding of social grace politeness is the cornerstone to social grace and it is a trait that must be taught presumably when a person is a child and there are no two ways about it so who teaches it the daycare worker the school teacher the teenage babysitter the church the family here's an idea how about mom? Op 4, chapter 11, page 241, the book, I am not a PhD. Wait, mom is not at home. Dad is not at home. No parents are at home or in the home. So who teaches politeness to an adolescent? In today's modern age of the early 21st, no one. Oh, and do not even bother with a challenge to that assessment because the first sign of bad manners is foul language, cussing, expletives, and not the light stuff either, but the heavy industrial waste. Sure, we toy around with bad words at times in a non-offensive way, however. Foul language is designed to corrupt social grace. It keeps rational thinking off balance, prevents negative thought restraint, perpetuates an understanding of resentment and even jealousy. In a nutshell, being civil is no longer a quantitative effort. We are accommodating to the rudeness, which makes absolutely no sense. Take note that public foul language and our courts doing more to protect the rights of lawbreakers over that of their victims goes hand in hand. 
but we are not going to get into that at this time. Let's be realistic, shall we? Programming a human being is not some trifle for which the corners can be simply cut. The Biggest Con Job of All Time, Chapter 1, Page 248, The Book, I Am Not a PhD. It takes great effort to input the details of life to a child, and yet there is no real parenting taking place in the modern household of the United States of America. Now we are going to tackle the details of why that is, but for now, let us just say that parents, society as a whole, take our children for granted, especially in regards to our male children. Think of it along the lines of a dog owner. As a puppy, the dog is manageable. However, what happens when the puppy gets big? Ever see an untrained dog fighting the leash, struggling to get free, controlling its master? Ever see a dog tied up, running around in circles? Ever see a dog tied up, wanting to play? Ever see a dog tied up, knowing there is nowhere to go, forgotten about? Ever see a dog jumping on strangers, or have you ever had one sniff at your crotch? How about the dog that never shuts up? How about the dog that poops anywhere and everywhere? How about the owner that leaves their dog alone? How about the owner whom lets their dog rip and run? Now look at the owner that applies a little training. Ever see the dog that stays by the side of its master? Ever see the dog that trots along never fighting the leash like at a kennel club dog show? Then of course there are those that sit on command, lay down, catch a frisbee, and even roll over. How about the owner that constantly interacts with their dog? Guess that would be necessary for training the dog. How about the owner with a friendly infrastructure in order for the dog to have a safe but captivating play area? Interesting the socially ignored parallel with our children. Parents do nothing with them, and what do they do? Pull and tug at their parents? Try to get free of their parents' leash? How about the child that jumps on people? That would be considered mouthing off, by the way. How about the child that wants to be a part of the world but is sheltered? How about the child who knows they are in a hopeless situation and just gives up teen suicide? The child that never shuts up? The social disruptor? How about the kid that poops everywhere? That would be the dirty, rotten things that come out of their mouths. How about the child that runs the streets? Ever heard of the term latchkey kid? Now, for those of you who are pet lovers, associate that idea with the puppy with the moist eyes wanting someone around, wanting to play, wanting to be loved, and when they do not get that attention, what do they become? What's ironic are the parents whom do interact with their child in some way, but do not apply some form of reinforcement training to curb the attitude, affluenza, entitlement, guilt. No. Parenting is quickly becoming a forgotten skill, something that was once as easy as pie, which is actually an excellent analogy to our modern parental lifestyle when considering that creating a pie is not an average skill. However, in days gone by, your average homesteader countrywoman was a master of the technique of baking before all else. With the family-owned rural world fading in the United States of America, many ideas are going with it, especially our understanding of true patriotic values and spirit. 
Disciplinary action, or what I like to call reinforcement training, is a necessity for lining up the remaining stones with the cornerstone, and yet we turn from its use more and more. Ever come across parents whom are trying to reason with their defiant child, and their child is just mouthing off to them like they own the world, even using foul language? If they are rude to their parents, then what will they be like around those whom are not familiar or used to the attitude? Oh, and just so we are clear, do not blame the guns, blame the rude, blame the lack of parental guidance, blame the lack of social warmth. In a nutshell, a child cannot grow up alone, and yet, even with two parents in the home, a child can still be alone. No need for proof of that. Children want to be spanked. They want their parents to get angry at them when they misbehave. They want their existence acknowledged. People, children in general, need proof that they exist, and proof of existence is conducted by acknowledging their existence. They want you, the parent, not a roof over their head and food in their mouths. Slaves, page 154 of the book, I am not a Ph.D., we have heard it a million times. People do not want to be treated as if they are invisible, especially our children. Therefore, if you wonder why people allow themselves to be subjugated, torn down, beaten, enslaved, dehumanized, sucked dry of the very freedoms necessary for a happy, productive lifestyle, it is because they would rather be miserable than invisible. For even a person who is treated like garbage is testament to their existence. Consider the use of stones as a comparison tool. For those of you who do not know construction material for building something that is sturdy, long-lasting, and most importantly, useful, so that our legacy will have meaning, is an example that goes without saying, and rudeness simply cannot be a part of the construction effort, no matter how you rationalize it. It is a substance that gets into the construction, resulting in eventual structural failure. These are the challenges we face in our time. That's all for now. Until next time. Oh, and P.S. If we are going to keep the internet, then it requires structure in order to be something more real to help us better understand ourselves. Blessings to you. This is R.E. Chapman. Au revoir, and good night.